God, as you moved upon the hearts and minds of the prophets and apostles of the past to write the Scriptures for us, so now move in our minds and hearts and give us understanding of what the Scriptures say. And appropriately, we pray, apply these to our lives today. For Jesus' sake, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. And take your Bibles to the passage of Scripture that was read for us earlier. We're looking this morning at Acts chapter 1. We're actually going to be looking at the whole of Acts chapter 1, right through from verses 1 through verse 26, kind of a bird's eye view this morning. Acts chapter 1, and we'll be starting around verse 4. A few weeks ago, we said to you that there is no higher priority for the church of Jesus Christ than to give heed to the commandment of our Lord to go and to make disciples of all nations. And the book of Acts is the story of the beginning of a disciple-making movement that began in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and continues to this very day. During Holy Week, we took time to look at the momentous events that led to the final week of Christ's life. We talked about, we looked at what happened on that Sunday when he entered Jerusalem, on the Friday when he was crucified, and then on Resurrection Day when he came out of the grave. We scanned over the triumphal entry of Christ in this final week of his life, the crucifixion of Jesus, the very purpose of his death, and that after his death for 40 days, the, 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 the risen Christ appeared to the apostles he had chosen and to others, and he showed himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. Now, this was important that all of this happen, that these convincing proofs be given to them, and it's important for the disciple-making experience today because we need to know what these basic truths of the gospel actually are, that Christ died, that he rose again, and that he ascended into heaven, and we're going to be talking about some of that again today. These are foundational truths. They're foundational truths for your Christian life. They're foundational truths to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is no message to share with anybody. There is no disciple-making move movement. I want you to notice the key verse of Acts chapter 1. Actually, it's the key verse of the whole of the book of Acts. It's verse 8, verse 8, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you, be, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Two things I want you to see here. This is just kind of a in, an in, intro as to where we're going. Two things to see. First of all, notice the reference to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now, this is, this is important because the whole of the book of Acts is about the works of the Holy Spirit. We sometimes call this book the Acts of the Apostles. That's really an abbreviation. We abbreviate it further by calling it the Acts, but it really should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. Now, there's something here of, of the Holy Spirit coming on you. See that? When the Holy Spirit comes on you. I'm going to use the word anointing to describe, describe this. Now, in some ways, the word uh, anoint, anoint, anointing has gone off the rails in many Christian circles today. There's anointing for this and anointing for that and anointing for everything. But even though the word is, 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 is often 
improperly used, I'm still choosing to use this word. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you. He will anoint you. Second key thought in verse 8 is that they're going to be witnesses. Witnesses. They're going to be enabled to become witnesses. Notice he doesn't use the word, you'll become preachers. It's key. He doesn't say you're going to become evangelists. Now, did they become preachers and evangelists? Yes. Yes. That's not the word he uses. The word he uses is witnesses. This is the key word of the book of Acts. Key verse, Acts 1.8. Key word, witnesses. It's found 39 times in the book of Acts. And this is what the apostles understood their role was. Not so much preachers, not so much teachers, not so much evangelists, but witnesses. They were to bear witness to the truth that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. It's the recurring message all through the book of Acts. Now, when you and I think of the word witnesses today, we, we understand the word. It has some kind of a legal connotation to it. Um, witnesses are needed in judicial procedures in a court because a witness can establish the facts of whether a person is innocent or guilty. They give verifiable observation as to what happened, and they help in the whole judicial procedure in a court. And in one sense, that's the way the word is being used here because convincing proofs were given and they're going to convince others. They're going to give evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead. But the word witnesses in Acts is also used in a broader sense. And we use it in a broader sense today. We use it in the sense of something that we saw or something that we experienced personally. We're personal witnesses to these things. And we're going to come back to this in just a moment. Here's what I want to do in Acts 1 this morning. I want to look at what actually happens here, what is actually said here by Luke. And then at the end, I want to talk about how might the Holy Spirit use Acts chapter 1, what we look at here, what actually happened, how might he use that in our lives today? What might the Spirit be saying to us through Acts chapter 1 today. First thing is by way of review, and that is that these witnesses were prepared. That takes us to verses 1 through 3. There were two things, as we saw last Sunday morning, that the Lord did to prepare them to be the anointed witnesses that he wanted them to be. First of all, he convinced them of the, of the truth of the resurrection. Jesus talked with these men and women. He shared, uh, he showed himself alive to them. He showed them the, the nail prints in his hands and in his feet, and then he ate with them. He talked with them and to them. In other words, Jesus was alive to their senses. He gave convincing proofs, and this completely transformed them and fully convinced them of the truth, not only of the resurrection, but the truth of Christian faith that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. Secondly, he, he prepared them by instructing them about the kingdom of God. It says in verse uh, 3, the last line, he appeared to them over a, four, a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. He, he cleared up the misconceptions that they had. He removed their, their narrow, provincial, nationalistic way of, of confining the, the kingdom of God to one nation, Israel alone. And he corrected their thinking in all of these ways, and he gave them a global vision, a global vision of the kingdom of God, that through the gospel, Men and women are brought into the kingdom. Through the preaching of the death and resurrection of Christ, people respond to that message, and they come under the rule of God today. 
Now in verses four through eight, Jesus, or Luke gives to us more information regarding this instruction that Jesus gave. And I want you to see here that the witnesses were commissioned and that there were two things involved in this commissioning. Notice verse four. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. First thing about this commissioning is that Jesus promised them power, spiritual power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I want you to see here is Jesus uses a number of different words in this, in this passage. First of all, in verse 4, he says, this is the gift, the word gift. This is the gift my Father prom- promised. Then also in verse 4, he says, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 8, he says, the Holy Spirit will come on you. What we need to understand is there are many different words or many different images that Jesus used to describe this, this promise of power. First word he uses here is gift, which reminds us of the truth that the Old Testament writings, the Father in, etern- in, in, in the past, before Christ came, promised that he would send the Holy Spirit. In the prophet Joel we read, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God, prophes- God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel and said, I will put my spirit in you and move you to obey my commands. And so this was the promise of the Father. It was a gift, not deserved. Now the word baptism is used, the image of, of, of being immersed. You'll be immersed, baptized by the Holy Spirit. And this conveys the, 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 the overwhelming experience that this would be. Just as a person is plunged underneath the water when we bap- baptize them and the water engulfs them, the water surrounds them. So Jesus uses this, this word to say, this is the kind of an experience this will be, an overwhelming experience of the Holy Spirit. And later in the book of Acts, the word filled will be used. We read in Acts 2, verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And here we have the, the idea of water being poured out. And that's exactly what the prophet Joel said. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit. Water being poured out, an overwhelming experience. Picture someone standing under a waterfall and the water cascading down and, 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 and hitting that person. That's, that's the image that is given here. In John chapter 20, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. And then after he said that, John tells us he breathed on them. He breathed on them. And what did he say? Receive the Holy Spirit. So again, the the Holy Spirit now is described as, as, as the breath of the Lord Jesus himself, which means as Jesus was breathing, just as God breathed into his creation, just as God spoke and and brought all of creation into being, so the Lord Jesus breathes on us and he gives us his life. You remember it was John who said, I baptize with water, but the one coming after me will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. He's the one who breathes, as it were, the Holy Spirit upon us. 
On another occasion, we have recorded in John chapter 7 that Jesus said the one who believes in him out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, and he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. Now we have the idea of a flowing river flowing out of us, the Holy Spirit flowing into us, flowing out of us. And if you jump down to chapter 2, verse 2, it says suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. This was the Holy Spirit. So we have a different image altogether, the image of wind. As it were, the disciples setting their sails to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit. So these are the different images that are used here to describe this this power coming upon us. Now, when you and I think of, of this, the Spirit of God coming on us, we, we often think in, indivi- in, in an individualistic way, that this, this is some kind of a, a personal experience that we have, and, and, and we don't, we don't uh, negate that fact. But the word come on you, the word there, the, the pronoun you is, is not the singular you, it's the plural you. It's, this, is, this is a communal experience. This is something for the whole church. The Lord Jesus was promising here to to pour out the power of the Holy Spirit upon the totality of his people. Fifty years ago, I became a follower of the Lord Jesus, and after I was converted, I came back to Toronto where I was living in Scarborough at the time, and I began to share the gospel with two of my friends. I began to witness to them about my experience, and the reaction I got was not very good at first. One of them was so angry, he actually slugged me and forced me to the ground, and another just broke out laughing at me in, in, in the class because I tucked a, a Gideon's uh, pocket tes- testament into my, my breast pocket, and he said, what's that? Are you smoking now? I said, no. I pulled it out and showed him, and he, he just broke out laughing that I was carrying a Bible with me throughout the school. Seven weeks later, both of my friends became followers of Jesus. And we would meet every morning before school. We would meet sometimes for half an hour or more, and we would simply pray that God would would give us opportunities all day long as high school students to share Jesus. And we shared the gospel. We shared Christ. We witnessed about Christ to teachers. We, We witnessed to fellow students almost every day. There were conversations about Jesus. And after two years, over 100 had come to faith in Christ. It was a phenomenal thing that had happened. We used to crash parties on Friday night when people were getting drunk and stoned out of their minds and witness to people about Jesus. Jesus became the number one issue in our high school. There was power. That's the only way I can explain it. There was power. There was life-changing power. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, he, don't, he didn't just give them a promise of power, he, he provided for them a plan. And the plan there is in verse eight, you're, you're going to begin in Jerusalem, then you're gonna to go to Judea, then you're gonna to go to Samaria, and then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. This, this verse almost serves as an outline for the whole of the book of Acts, because you can follow this through, how it starts in Jerusalem, and with ever-increasing circles of influence, the gospel goes out. It began in one local place, and then it spread to Judea, to the whole nation, and then it jumped the borders, as it were, into a a different cultural group, and then finally it went to the ends of the earth. And you can follow this through the story 
of the book of Acts, a progressively expanding witness to others, and not just the apostles who were doing this. There was, there was a generational expansion that happened too as others got on board, the women that are mentioned here in Acts 1, the brothers of Jesus that are mentioned here in Acts 1, and then other people are called, and God uses them in incredible ways. At the start then of this disciple-making movement, the movement was defined as being a movement that would embrace the whole of the globe, that the disciple-making mission is about a global people to the ends of the earth, that in then, then this large community that God is going to create, there will be the diversity of all of the world's peoples. Now, the next thing that happens is the witnesses see Jesus ascend into heaven. Jesus speaks these final words to them in verse 8 in this commission. And immediately in verse 9, we said after, it says, After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, this is really a dramatic picture here, a dramatic event. The cloud receives him. You and I just think of a normal cloud, but that's not what's being referred to. This is the Shekinah glory cloud. This is the cloud that appeared on the mountain when Moses was given the law. This is the cloud, the pillar of cloud that followed Israel through the wilderness on their journey for 40 years. This is the cloud that filled the tabernacle and the temple. This is the cloud that, that, that enveloped Jesus when he was transfigured before their very eyes. Their hearts are pounding at this point in time as Jesus goes up and he is enveloped in the glory of God. Now, there's a reason why Jesus ascended here. Jesus ascended to the Father at this point in time and was received into this cloud of glory to show that, that there was a finality to the appearances that he made after he had risen from the dead. For 40 days he had been doing this. He would appear, he would disappear, he would reappear at different times. But this time, the departure was to be final. And so he didn't just simply disappear before their eyes, but he ascended up into heaven, which would underscore this truth, that this is the final, as it were, vision that they will see of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. That they would not then to expect him to sh show up again, as it were. Instead, rather, they would wait. And they were told to wait in verse 4, for the gift my father promised for this baptism of the Holy Spirit. They would wait not for Jesus again to appear, but they would wait for someone else to come on the scene. Jesus was elevated, as it were. He was exalted to the right hand of the fa Father, and, and the apostles wrote about this, that how God highly exalted him and gave to him a name that is above every other name. So Jesus now, before their very eyes, is exalted to the place of supreme dignity and respect and honor. He is exalted as Lord over all things. This underscores the truth of what he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so the ascended Christ would become their confidence at this point in time. He would intercede for them, and he would be the one to send the Holy Spirit. But we don't just have the ascension here because verse 10 says, as they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside the men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? 
This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This would be different than, than his resurrection appear, appearances. He would literally return to the earth again. So just as the ascended Christ was to be their confidence, so the returning Christ would be their impetus. And the angels implied, implied here with these uh, words, why, why, why are you gazing up into heaven? He's coming back. Just as he went into heaven visibly, bodily, gloriously, so he will come back, back again visibly, gloriously, bodily. It's as though the angels are saying, what are you standing here looking at this? He's coming back. There's something else you need to be doing. You see, they're gazing into the sky, but, but Jesus has just told them they're to go to the ends of the earth. It is the earth and not the sky that should be their preoccupation. There is work to do until he returns. So the implication of the angel's words are that between the ascension of Jesus into heaven and his return at the end of time, that this span of time is to be filled with the worldwide spirit-empowered mission of Jesus to be witnesses and to make disciples of all nations. The returning Christ would be their impetus. I love how John Stott puts it in his commentary on Acts. The late John Stott writes that the angels were implying something like this. You've seen him go. You will see him come. But between the coming and the going, there must be another. The Spirit must come. And you must go into all the world for Christ. So Jesus is returning, and the angels are saying, it's time that you guys got going. It's time to make disciples. It's time to be witnesses. It's time to start now in Jerusalem. So what does verse 12 tell us? They went back to Jerusalem. Now, they were in a place called Bethany at this point in time. And so when it says here they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, it was a Sabbath day walk from the city. You see, on the Sabbath day, they were only allowed a Sabbath day walk, which essentially meant they were able to walk on the Sabbath about 1,100 meters, just a little more than a kilometer. About a 15-minute walk if you're really going slow. So it was clear to them that they would have to go back to Jerusalem, and um, they now pray for the Spirit to come. It was clear to them that their immediate duty was to wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Luke tells them how they occupied, Luke tells us how they occupied their time during, that fort, the, during those 10 days from the ascension of Jesus until the Holy Spirit coming down, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. It's interesting that Luke ends his gospel by saying that they were in the temple continually praising God. And here in Acts chapter 1, it says that they went into an upper room where they prayed to God. Notice what it says, verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath they walked from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room, the room. It's the, it's the, the definite article is used here. This is the room that they had been in before. This was a room, no doubt, of a very large house. Uh, more like a banquet hall, a, a, a very, very large room, 
probably in a very, very large house, and they had been there before with the Lord, the Lord Jesus. It was in this room that the Lord Jesus had spoken to them about the coming of the Holy Spirit. If you read John chapter 14 through 16, you have the record of what happened in this room. Jesus said so much. Five times he told them that he would ask the Father, and the Father will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit He came to them, and so there was this continuous time of praise, but notice verse 13 tells us who was in the room, but verse 14 says they all joined together constantly in prayer. Now, we don't know if they were praying for 10 days straight or there would have been different times where the prayer would have been interrupted for other, for other things, but for the most part, it was, it was a continuous, steadfast, ongoing time of prayer until the Holy Spirit came, and he came ultimately in power. There are two things that characterized their praying here. The first is this. Look at verse 14. Their prayer was united. Their prayer was united. It says that they joined together, together constantly in prayer. Now notice the number of people who were actually there. Verse 15 tells us, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, 120 people in this upper room. It must definitely have been a very large room. They were squeezed in. I think there's a symbolism to this number because according to Jewish law, uh, in order to form your own community or your own town, you had to have at least 120 people, and you had to have those who would give counsel or leadership within that group of 120 people. And so here's the church, very small. But notice not just the number, but notice the diversity of those who are here. Verse 13 tells us that the apostles were there. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They're they're all there. They're all there. Then we read in verse 14 that they were there along with the women. The women. And these women would have been women like Mary Magdalene, Mary Clopas, Susanna, Joanna, Mary of Bethany and her sister Martha, who were the sisters of Lazarus, who Jesus had risen, had raised from the dead. These are the women that are being referred to here. It also says that Mary was there, the mother of Jesus. This is the last reference we have to Mary in God's God's Word. We don't know what happened to her after this, the last reference that we have, but she's a part of this community of believers. It also says, and his brothers... His brothers, this is referring to the brothers of Jesus, not to the cousins of Jesus, not to the spiritual brothers of Jesus, but to the physical brothers of Jesus. For Joseph and Mary had children after Jesus was born. And you remember in John chapter 7, these brothers were skeptical about Jesus. They had rejected the fact that he was Messiah, but clearly they have been converted now, and they're in this group. And they're meeting together a group of strong-willed men. Remember them refusing to wash the feet of Jesus, wanting the best position at the side of the Lord Jesus? And these women, some of them with a real past, 
and these brothers who were stubborn and rejected the Lord, and, and now they're together. They're united. And how are they united? They're, they're united in that they're looking to Jesus at the same time and for the same thing. And they're focused on the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their prayer was united. Their prayer was also persevering. It says they joined together constantly. They were sticking at praying. It reminds us, of course, of what Jesus had told, had told them. You remember in Luke 11, Jesus told them a story. He wanted to underscore the truth that when we pray, we're to keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking on the door. Ask you will receive, seek, you will find, knock, keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. And then he told them the story of a man who went to bed at night, and he didn't have any bread in his house, but someone came and knocked on his door in the middle of the night and said, I don't have any money, I don't have any bread, I, 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 you know, can you help? And, and the, the man wanted to chase him away and say, go away, but because the man kept knocking on the door, the man in the house decided that he would open the door and give him the bread that he needed. And then Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The asking for bread is like asking God to, to give, as it were, the power of his spirit. That's what these men were doing here. They, they, were, they, were, they were living out the very parable that Jesus spoke. It's as though, though they were saying as they continued in prayer, we have nothing to give. We have nothing to give to the people of Jerusalem. We have nothing to give to the people of Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. How could, how could we ever give them the bread that they need to find life? We're asking you to give us this bread so that we can then give this bread to others. They're asking for the Spirit of God to come. Now I know that, that, that some people would say this is not an appropriate prayer to pray because the Holy Spirit is already with us. But listen, this prayer is an appropriate prayer for though the Spirit's coming was promised, He is still clearly to be sought after. They're clinging to the promise that you'll be baptized with the Spirit, that the Spirit of God will come upon you. And by prayer, as it were, they were raising their sails to catch the wind of the Spirit. They were expectant in this persevering prayer. Friends, there's something about prayer. There's something mysterious about it. It's not just us petitioning God, but prayer, just the very, the very act of praying itself is something that God uses to ready us. It's something that God uses to prepare us. There's a sanctifying process that happens in prayer because as we pray long in God's presence, there is a, there is a bending of our wills to His will. The fifth thing that happened here is that the witnesses chose another apostle, and the remainder of the chapter deals with this fact that they chose another apostle, one to fill the position that Judas had left behind. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now, you can imagine these 120 in the room at this point in time, what they must have thought and felt about Judas. Judas. 
in light of all that they've just gone through. I mean, Judas is the last guy you want to talk about at this point in time, especially in light of the fact that this disciple-making movement is being entrusted into their hands. But Peter, the apostle, rightly discerned that there was one further matter that they needed to address before this mission could be launched. In some way, they needed to address this tragic death of Judas, not just his death, because what was more tragic than his death was his defection, how he had abandoned the Lord and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Peter knew that there was a need for another apostle to replace him. And you, you wonder, it's not said in the passage, but you wonder in some way were the 120 struggling emotionally with this very fact that somehow maybe God's plan had been thwarted because of what Judas had done. But Peter says, no, that's not the case at all. And he quotes, if you go to verse 20, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see here that he actually quotes from the book of Psalms. And he points out that what Judas did was actually in fulfillment of what the Scripture had said. It was all according to God's holy plan. So verse 21, he says, Therefore it's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Peter knew that while the 11 could have carried on the mission, there was a unique symbolism in adding a 12th apostle to their number because God was now forming a new Israel, forming a new people. And just as ancient Israel came from the 12 sons of Jacob, so now this new Israel would be formed by the 12 apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter mentions here the necessary qualifications of what would be involved in being an apostle in verse 21 and 22. And the first thing, if we look at the last line of verse 20, 22, this individual needed to be someone who was a witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But not just that, Peter makes it clear, if you go to verse 21, we need to choose one who's been with us the whole time. The Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until he was taken up from us. So it had to be an individual then who, who, had, who had been there when Jesus taught, who had seen the miracles that the Lord Jesus had actually done. And so this was narrowed down to two men that they would choose. And the two men are mentioned here in verse 23. They proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. Let's just refer to him as that. Justice and Matthias. Matthias. Now, we don't, we don't know who these men were. Matter of fact, this is the last reference we have to Matthias in all of God's word. We do know this, that the tradition of the church tells us that Matthias went on to become a martyr for Christ in the land of Ethiopia, that he was put to death there because he was an apostle of the Lord Jesus. Now, it's clear that both Justice and Matthias were qualified but they cast lots, and they, but not only that, verse 24, they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they drew lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. 
The church historian Eusebius tells us that Matthias and Justice would have been one of the 70 who had followed the Lord. You remember that Jesus had 12, but there was a larger group of 70, and they also became preachers and evangelists and witnesses for the Lord Jesus. So out of that group, Matthias was actually chosen. I want to read to you a quote from Bruce Milne, who I met about 25 years ago. He was the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Vancouver, and Bruce Milne wrote these words. The stage was now set for the day of Pentecost. The apostles have received the commission. They have seen his ascension. The team is complete again, ready to be anointed as his chosen witnesses. Only one thing is missing. The Spirit had not yet come. The place left vacant by Judas has been filled, but the place left vacant by Jesus has not yet been filled by the Spirit. So the chapter ends with 120 waiting in Jerusalem, persevering in prayer, with one heart and mind, poised ready to fulfill Christ's command just as soon as he has fulfilled the promise. There you have Acts chapter 1. I hope that I've been able to explain it well to you and to help you perhaps understand some of the things that are in this passage that you may not have understood before. But here's why I want to park now for the next 10 minutes as I finish this message. And I want us to come to the, take, the, take, the takeaway points. And I want us to answer this question today. What might the Spirit be saying to us? So we got the facts. We know what actually happened in Acts chapter 1. We know about the promise. But what might the Spirit be saying to us today from Acts chap- chapter 1? Is there anything here in Acts chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit might say to us as a church that are applicable to us today? Let me share seven things, and you can choose which one is the most applicable to you. But in some ways, I think they're all applicable to us as a church today. First of all, there is a word here, I believe, from the Holy Spirit about witnessing. We are witnesses. Notice I did not say we are preachers. Not all are given that gift. Not all are evangelists. Not all are given that gift. But we are all witnesses, every one of us. There are two aspects to being a a witness. First of all, there's telling Jesus' story. And that might be the hard part for many of us, to actually tell the story, to communicate that to others, to tell about his life, about his teaching, about the things that he did, about his death on the cross, about his resurrection, about his ascension into heaven, about the fact that he's the one who gives the Holy Spirit to those who believe in him. That's the story of Jesus. As witnesses of the Lord Jesus, every one of us needs to be as familiar with that story as we can possibly be so that we can tell people about these aspects of the story of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. But the other part is not just telling the story of Jesus. The other part is you telling your story. Because if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus, then, then you have a story to, to tell. You, you have an experience with Jesus. And whatever that experience is, that's something that you can convey to others. 
This is something that God has done for you. There's something that happened to you. So it's, it's not you trying to be creative and dream up things to say. It's just simply conveying to other people what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. Once I was blind, but now I can see. That's a witness. That's a testimony. Once I was blind, but now I can see. Once my life was characterized by these things, and now my life today is characterized by these things because Jesus saved me. Friends, it really is as simple as that. Witnesses testify. They simply tell a story. Witnesses do not instruct. Witnesses do not teach. Witnesses do not preach. Witnesses simply tell the story. And for many of us, we have complicated this sharing about Christ with others because we think we have to have all of our ducks lined up in a row. We think we need all this information about Jesus before we can begin to talk to others about him. But friends, that really is an impediment to many of us. All we simply have to have is a story, and every one of us has a story of what Jesus Christ has done for us. There's a word about witness here. Secondly, I think there's a word from the Holy Spirit about dependence. Dependence. Many of us think we can't witness, we can't serve, we can't serve God, we can't minister, we can't do all these kinds of things. But yes, you can. Yes, you can. If there's anything that this passage confronts, it is our need for the de- of dependence upon the Holy Spirit. The force of the command, wait in Jerusalem, bears this very truth out. Now, I know that this was a unique moment in time before the Holy Spirit had come. So there's a sense in which this waiting was a time-constrained thing. But I think there's a timeless principle that is here that we need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. We can't do this business of witnessing and making disciples on our own. We're not able to help people. We're not enabled, as it were, in ourselves to be able to be witnesses. But we can depend upon the Holy Spirit. We can ask God to give us the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me go a step further. Everything that happens in the church, all ministry that happens here should be dependent upon God, the Holy Spirit. When we share Christ with others, when we seek to be witnesses in our workplaces or in our schools or wherever God may have us, we need to be dependent upon the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Again, I want to bring you back to the images that, that, are, that are used. You will be baptized in the Spirit. Jesus breathed on them and said, you will receive the Spirit. He who believes in me, out of his innermost being will flow Rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit will come on you. Now, in each image that is used, it's not something that you do. It's not dependent on you. It's what God does to you. It's how the Holy Spirit uses you. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, the very power of the Holy Spirit is available to us today and we must be dependent upon him 
The next thing I want to say is that this power of the Holy Spirit is always in the Scripture linked to prayer. There is a word here about the place of prayer. You've heard me say this before. I say it again to you today. When prayer goes up, what happens? Power comes down. When prayer goes up, power comes down. Before we begin any ministry in this church, we must begin it with seasons of prayer. Not just a quick prayer, but I would say even seasons of prayer. Whenever we are going to be making important decisions, whether it's among the elders or the ministry team or the church at large, like when we went into our building expansion four or five or six years back, we need to make sure that those decisions are bathed in prayer. The disciples bathed the decision to appoint Matthias in prayer. Prayer is not a tack-on. It's not something we just sort of start the meeting with and end the meeting with. Prayer is to be central to everything that we do. We're in a very unique time in our church right, right now. As COVID is coming to an end and we're starting to regather our people and rebuild the ministries of our church, it is essential that we rebuild on a foundation of prayer. As we begin to emphasize more and more the need for small group ministry within our church and all of us to be involved in a small group where we are nurtured and cared for and where we can minister to others and reach out to others, we need to be doing this, bathing it all in prayer. Number four, I believe Acts chapter one has a word for us about leadership in the church. Clearly, Matthias, or Justice, Matthias being the one chosen, they had to meet certain qualifications in order to be chosen as an apostle. And that would be true of any leadership position within our church, particularly those who serve as elders or as deacons within our church. Biblically qualified leadership is needed. And biblically qualified leadership is needed for this disciple-making mission through our church to succeed. Matthias was the one whom God put his hand on. And what stands out to me was here was a man who not only had been with the Lord from the baptism of John up until the time that he ascended into heaven and had been an eyewitness of the, res the resurrection, but here was a man who was in sync with the message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. Completely in sync. He was already involved. He was one of the 70 who had, the Lord had already sent out two by two, to do certain kinds of work. In other words, this man was not chosen in a vacuum. This man was chosen because he stood out as a man upon whom the Spirit of God was. Acts tells us later on in the story how they would then choose deacons in Acts 6. And then we read of a man named Philip whom God uses as an evangelist. And then we read of Barnabas coming alongside Saul of Tarsus to help him. And then we read of Silas joining the team. And then we read of Timothy, a young man joining Paul's team. And then in Acts chapter 14, we read about them appointing elders in all the churches that they had established in their missionary journey. You see, the book of Acts lays out the importance of biblically qualified leadership in this disciple-making movement. 
the elders of the church, we are presently engaged in a discussion now about who we will recommend to you to serve as elders at the end of this year to begin their term at the beginning of next year. It is something that we're already praying about and discussing among ourselves because there's a word about leadership here. Number five, there's also a word about being a disciple. The definition of a disciple is one who follows Jesus, is being changed by Jesus, and is being committed to the mission of Jesus. Being a disciple means being committed to the mission of Jesus. And if, if, any, if any verse in the word of God shows to us the heart of the Lord Jesus, it is verse eight. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of of the world. Make disciples of all nations. Friends, these are not just words. These are not just commands. These words, these commands of the Lord Jesus reveal something of the heart of Jesus himself. And those who follow Jesus are to have the heart of Jesus for the whole world. Our hearts should be for the world. Our hearts should be expansive hearts of ever-increasing circles of influence to bring the world to faith in Jesus Christ. Number six, there's a word here about the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse one. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. The implication being Jesus was just getting started, that his work continues on. And the book of Acts is telling us that the work of Jesus continues on. It is the work of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles he had chosen. You know, we sometimes say something like this, that the work of the Lord Jesus is in our hands today. If it is, then there's no hope we would ever do the work of the Lord Jesus. We could never fulfill his work today. It is not in our hands We are his hands. Do you see the difference? We are his hands. He continues to do and to teach. And Jesus, and we'll see this in Acts, has given various gifts of the Holy Spirit to his people. And each one of these gifts of the Spirit manifests in some way the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something about Jesus in every gift of the Holy Spirit. And you have a gift, and I have a gift, and most of us have other gifts. We have many gifts. We have a gift mix that the Lord has given to us in which we can manifest Jesus when we serve him. And so when you serve, it is not your ministry When you serve, it is the ministry of the Lord Jesus. When you give financially to support the work of this church, it's not the work of this church that you're giving to. You're giving to the ministry of Jesus through the church. These women who would follow Jesus, we read elsewhere in the Gospels, they were the ones who financially supported Jesus and this apostolic band in the ministry that had been given. They were the ones who supported them financially. They were doing the ministry of Jesus by their financial giving. This should completely change how we view things in the church and how we view the support of the work of the church. And finally, there is a word here about community. It's interesting how the names of individuals are included here. And uh, each of them had a part to play. The apostles, 12 men, 
They were a community of uh, all of their own. The 120, a larger community for sure, but the promise of Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, upon the community, upon the people, not a person, but the people, upon the church, upon all of the disciples of Jesus. There's something communal here that is being communicated to us, and we're going to see this even more as we go through the book of Acts. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, can God meet us and minister to us privately? Of course, of course he can. He's God. And should we have private experiences with the Lord? Of course we should. And I hope you will have many, and I hope they will be daily. But we cannot avoid this communal aspect that is mentioned here. This is the very purpose of the church. The purpose of the church. We do not live out our faith in isolation. We do not live out our faith in isolation from each other. How can you be a disciple of Jesus and obey the commands of Jesus when almost all of the commands of Jesus in one way or another relate to our community life? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. How can you do that in isolation? Encourage one another. How can you do that by yourself? Love one another as I have loved you. How can you live out that command? Forgive one another as I have forgiven you. How can you forgive others if you're not relating to them and being offended every day by them? In other words, you you don't live out your faith in isolation. And so when people say, well, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm stepping back from the church, you're not following Jesus. I don't care how spiritual you sound, you're not following Jesus. Because we are to be committed to one another. I'm going to say this even though we're not online today, but those who are watching online who don't have valid health reasons, who are all locked up in fear, those who are online because it's just simply the comfortable thing to do now, it's one of my viable options in worship. Listen, You need to hear this word. There is a communal aspect to our life. Pray for me, because I'm going to let them have it at 11 (laughs) o'clock. And for some of you who are just simply on on the periphery of the life of the church, you're just sort of touching in and just sort of tasting and stepping back, tasting and stepping. Listen, come in. Come in. Get to know people. Get involved in a small group. Let's begin to live out our faith with each other in community. Growing as a disciple always happens when we do it with others who are trying to grow as disciples also. Please stand. Lord Jesus, so much here in this passage. Lord, I'm just, I'm thrilled about the book of Acts. I'm thrilled, Lord, that you gave us this this book and Lord, there's going to be so many other things in the coming weeks that we're going to see here that I, I think are just a, a timely word, like, a, like, a, like a, a medicine for the church. And I pray that, Lord, you will continue to speak through us through this book. I, I pray that every week as we open your word here, 
that there will be a word from the Holy Spirit applicable to us today. Because Lord, we want to be a disciple-making church. We want our church to be a disciple-making movement. We wanna make an impact in our city. We wanna make Jesus the number one issue in our city. And Lord, we want, we need your power. And so we pray today, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Come among us, mold us, make us what you want us to be. Fill us and use us for the glory of Jesus. We just want to close our worship with Jesus' words in John 20. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Amen.